0: I'm privileged to be one of the elders here, and thank you for the opportunity to study this week and to consider God's Word, and I hope that it's an encouragement and a challenge for each of us, but let's take that to the Lord together as a church and pray that he would bless our time. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for your kindness and your gentleness. Thank you for your faithfulness to me in this church over these winter months. You continue to bless us undeservedly, God. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be in our hearts. May it be on my lips and in my words this morning. May may your presence be with us, God. May we be happy in our lives together and joyous in our praise to you. God, please be with us now. Amen. Well, I have one question for you this morning and one question I want us to consider. Are you happy? Are you happy? If so, do you know why? That's a topic that the world considers all the time, isn't it? In fact, there's a a 2017 article in Forbes magazine written by, I think, uh, Travis Bradbury, and in it he says the following He says, We're all chasing something, be it a promotion, a new car, or a significant other. This leads to a belief that when this happens, I'll finally be happy While these major events Do make us happy at first Research shows this happiness doesn't last The mistaken notion that major life events Dictate your happiness and sadness Is so prevalent that psychologists Have a name for it Impact bias The reality is event happiness is fleeting Happiness That lasts Is earned through your habits Bradbury says supremely happy people have honed these habits and maintained their happiness day in, day out. And then he goes on to show these 10 habits that he's found that make people incredibly happy. They include things like exercise, being generous with others, and with their money, having good friends, and getting enough sleep. But he concludes with this. Happiness can be tough to maintain, but investing in the right habits... Pays off Well some of these things Sound great I would love to get more exercise And more sleep and and I'm sure They do contribute to our happiness In this temporary sense But what I hope We consider this morning Is what will be Lasting happiness for each Of us and what we find in God's Word so as Keith told us already If you would please turn to Psalm 1 As we consider the beginning of this study For the next 12 to 14 weeks together Let's look at the very beginning of Psalms As you turn there Or as you start to browse it I just want to remind you um, What this book is This is the largest book In the Bible Which which we will not be covering All 150 Psalms In the next 12 weeks Uh, This is the most quoted book In the New Testament It has the most authors of any book in the Bible. David wrote almost half of them. It's divided into five books. You can kind of see that at the top of your page, if you look in the Bible, it says, Book 1, Psalm 1 to 41. And there's some purpose to that. And, And that has been debated amongst scholars and debated amongst theologians. But there's something in that that we do want to look at. And it somewhat mirrors the first five books of the Bible. That there's some sense of this these five books as the first five books are make up the Pentateuch, these make up a complete book of praise is actually what that means in Hebrews that Psalms means book of praise it's really it's really for the people of Israel. it's supposed to be their songbook almost more like their prayer book. It's not a hymnal where you can just flip open to you know, 342 and sing holy, holy, holy. It's in there, but there's some intentionality and purpose that is in this for us, and that's what we want to consider. There is a ton of praise. There is a ton of lament. In fact, lament, meaning grief, sorrow, the honesty about what is not right with the world that the psalmist sees and what he's struggling with in comparison to what he thinks to be true of God. Is all over psalms It's full of emotion You can find every emotion Which is I think why so many of us Love this book Or should love this book But this is where it begins And as I've studied this week I find it very interesting That we would begin here So let's look at psalm 1 together Therefore, the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. But the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Well, in the time we have remaining this morning, I want to be very simple about how we cover and how we look at this text. So I want to answer the who, the what, the when, and the where of the context of what we see in Psalm 1. And then I want us to spend a little time at the end really Drawing out to an application Of why is this Psalm here Why is it at the beginning of this Book of praise And how should that benefit Us how should that affect us how should It challenge us this Morning so Let's start with the who Who is being described at The beginning of Psalms The blessed man The blessed man The Hebrew in this most accurately describes it as happy, which is why I asked you the question this morning. The happy man is described in this first song. And I don't mean happy like when my wife Clara decides to unexpectedly bake pumpkin chocolate chip cookies. Like, that's great, I'm happy, until I realize that I probably need to go back to exercising more, and things like that. That's a temporary happiness. This happiness that is described in the Hebrew word here and described in the book of Psalms has more to it than that. It's lasting, as I said, but it's actually because this happiness comes as a guidance. This happiness comes as a lasting peace of knowing that your path had actually been made straight, that you were directed where you were to go. If you go back to the original article in that Forbes article, these incredibly successful people that are happy in this temporary worldly sense. Well, Psalm is saying here, happiness is your path being made straight towards God. And that he is guiding you and drawing you. And in that, there's a peace and there's a happiness. And it's something we're all looking for. So I googled habits of happiness, and I found pages and pages and pages and pages, and I picked the Forbes article. I thought it was interesting, but it's something that the world's thinking about every day. It's something that we're all looking for. There's a natural search for happiness and fulfillment. I like what Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says when he looks at this verse first. He says, all of life is searching for happiness. The whole story of life, civilization is this great quest for happiness. Nothing's doing to the sun, but here we have God's prescription for happiness. He goes on to remark in amazement in verse 1, and it's probably good for us to consider. He says, "Happiness is possible. Happiness is possible." I think that's the most amazing thing one can say in a world like this, Lloyd-Jones says. Why do I emphasize that? That is the great message of the Bible. There is happiness and there is blessedness possible in this world. And we can find it in the words here. So, who are you? Who are you this morning? I asked you if you were happy. I heard some yeses. Praise God for that. But would the Bible accurately describe you as blessed this morning? Would you be viewed as righteous before God today as we really get to the definition of what happiness is? Or would you be viewed as wicked, as insensitive and as hurtful as that may sound? Consider that this psalm gives an absolute standard for righteousness and wickedness. Sit in that moment for a second. And based on that, Are you happy Well let's learn more We talked about the who is in this passage And we see that it's compared To the who of the wicked That there is maybe Some temporary happiness they have But it is definitely not the same It is not blessed As we see in this man In Psalm 1 So let's consider the what What are the Characteristics of this happy man Well, I love A.W. Pink. He he points this out. He has three words that he thinks summarizes what these characteristics are, and he talks about the separation of the happy man. He talks about the occupation of the happy man, and he talks about a strange word, the fertilization of the happy man. That basically means the nourishment. So verse 1, what is the happy man separated from? The counsel of the wicked, the way of the sinners— And the seed of the scoffers This is really interesting As we're considering in this part of God's word This is a book of poetry right So there are are Intentional words that are to draw Out meaning and and Response from us and I've found The way this is described In the separation incredibly Intriguing because it is This descending Regression In how the, the, the wicked are Described And it's done in three ways Think about what characterizes the person Trying to get to the blessed man And we see it moves from the wicked And then to what's described as the sinner And finally what's described as the scoffer And when we look at the Hebrew definition of these words We look at the concordance We see that the wicked is really just someone who's guilty Someone who's sinful Someone who is dwelling in that space And then it moves to this idea of what is described as a sinner. That's a person known for their sin. And then finally, and we've seen this in the world around us, right? The idea of a scoffer, someone who actually takes pride in their sin, in what does not please God, and seeks, in some level, this definition of scoffer carries a little bit of almost an ambassador of sin. They want to grab people and bring them into relationship with sin. But we also see, it's not just what characterizes the person in this regression, we see what they are getting from the said person. So what the the happy man is separated from is what the wicked person's trying to offer him. So we see one, we see he's just getting advice. There's just worldly advice. There's something on Twitter that says, hey, you should think about this. And then it regresses into a path It leads to a path Meaning now I'm following it I'm pursuing that wisdom And then finally it ends In a home The word seek here Actually kind of has an understanding Of that's where you abide That's where your identity is So If, the, if what characterizes the person Is how sin Numbs our sensitivities And, and changes the company we keep when we're talking about what they're getting, we're talking about what their identity is. It moves from just, hey, I got some advice, to, hey, this defines me. And then finally, this regression talks about what do they do to be confronted by them. So the, the happy man in first is just walking by, he's walking, and he hears advice. And that advice causes potentially, though not here, thankfully to stand to stop to be like wow that's intriguing and then moves to the idea of sitting in it of absorbing it and this reveals our the focus that sin can give us right sin confronts us when we're walking when i hope that we think we're walking on that straight path and all of a sudden i hear something that goes wow that's interesting and i stop And then I listen more, and I think, well, that's interesting. And then maybe I start to pursue that path. And then finally it gets to the point where that becomes my focus. That becomes where I put my thoughts. James 1.15 says, Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. I want to give you just a silly illustration of, of what I thought of when I thought of this this week. I am a huge sports fan, which I think if you've listened to five or six of my sermons now, you probably have figured that out. But um, I'm not really a huge soccer fan. I grew up in Indiana, probably more of a basketball fan. But I love sports. So one day, about 12 years ago, I was in Chicago with m- meeting one of my best friends who lived there. And we were just in downtown Chicago, and we were driving down Michigan Avenue. And there was a mass of humanity headed towards the lake, which was really intriguing at 4 or 5 in the afternoon on a Saturday. And so we rolled down the windows as we were driving by, like, hey, what's going on? And this crowd of people like, shouted out, it's a World Cup qualifier doubleheader at Soldier Field. I looked at my friend, and we, we, we literally stopped the car. <laughs> and we said, hmm, never done that before. Let's try it. So then we got out, we found a parking spot, and we started following this massive humanity towards Soldier Field. And we decided, let's buy a ticket. We didn't know where we should sit, so we just took whatever ticket we could get, and we sat in a section of incredibly passionate, informed, I don't even know how to describe how amazing they were, but they were fans of El Tree, the Mexican national team. And we watched the U.S. play. They beat Panama. And then we watched Costa Rica versus Mexico. And I can tell you, we were the only non-Mexican national fans in our section. But by the end of it, we were standing on our chairs, jumping up and down with them, taunting the opposing goalkeeper. Literally taunting the opposing goalkeeper. And that is a silly story, right? And it was one of my best sports experiences of my life. But there's a correlation here. I had no intention of going to a soccer game in Chicago that day. I went to two. All because something intrigued me, and I thought, where are they going? Where is this path of humanity going? And it caused me to change what I was doing. It caused me to stop. It caused me to go in. It caused me to give money. And finally, I am now arm in arm, linking and identified and taunting. And that's what sin does. Just by driving by Well as I studied that this week I found that this, the psalmist did I, I thought why would you not start With this idea of Don't sit in With the scoffers Or stand with the sinners Or take the advice Of the wicked As in like This is bad, but don't even just be bad. Be be better and then be pure. But as I thought about that this week, I realized that's not how sin tempts us. That's not how our paths become crooked. It's that in gradation, we're we're brought from being on a path to being detracted from that. As I considered my own sin, I realized the wisdom and the approach of Psalm 1 here. Being separate from sin does not work that way because we don't understand how it tempts us. We don't understand what righteousness is. This week, for me, it was helpful to first ask myself, what worldly counsel am I listening to? And then trace that worldly counsel to where it is affecting my heart and causing me to give it time to letting it grow. And then what in that am I so insensitive to that I say that, that habit, may actually occupy my identity? And it's good because we can quickly gloss over these small parts of identity. Jerry Bridges even calls them respectable sins. Areas that we just don't even consider. That I think the psalmist is wise in saying, start here. What advice are you listening to? What advice or counsel of the world do you find yourself listening to? Social media? Gossip online? Gossip in this place? What definitions of success are you listening to? The image of the perfect life, the perfect family, the perfect house. You listen, maybe you think you're enlightened. I work in higher education. Maybe you put stock in people that have degrees. Maybe you put stock in people with letters at the end of their name, and you think that you should listen to those words as experts more than what you find in this word. What of those temptations cause you to stand, cause you to stop, cause your life to be led in a different direction? Some specific questions. How do you spend your weekends? Is it tempting to not be here? How do you spend your money? Finally, are you callous to voices in your life that are scoffing at God? Are you so comfortable with it that it may even be okay for you to sit in that place? Well, the blessed man, the happy man, he or she doesn't have time for this. They are separate from it. And they're not just separate from it, walking in this vacuum. As we see, they're separate. But they're also, as Pink says, they're occupied. They're busy. So let's look at what he's busy with. He's busy with, the del- his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on it he meditates day and night. The happy man loves God's law. He wants to spend as much time in it as he can. He wants to think about it. He wants to apply it. He wants to live it. He enjoys it. So what is God's law here? What is this? Law does not sound like a fun word. What do we mean? Well, this basically means, as we're studying this, this is the instructions of God. This is how God revealed himself. This is the word of God. Yes, it is the instructions, the rules that God has given. But remember the, the, the understanding of this word here in Psalms is actually one in which Goes back to the understanding of the Pentateuch That they would hold closely to them these first five books of the Bible Which they had had written by Moses, right? And these first five books of the Bible include God's law But they include God's law as a revelation of himself And a testimony of Of all the ways in which God Had been faithful to God's people And that Is what drives The happy man He wants to know it He wants to find it He wants to understand it He wants to memorize it Why? Because he wants God He doesn't want a list of rules He delights In it We read this morning From Joshua I found that incredibly encouraging this week what you have is you have joshua at the end of deuteronomy this is actually when we hear about the pentateuch the first five books of the bible being written and moses writes them and then he basically goes up on the mountain he gets to see the promised land he sees where the israelites will cross over and he dies And God had worked mightily through Moses. Think about that. They had left Egypt. They had crossed the Red Sea. They had walked through grumbling and struggling. They had had manna every day. They had had a pillar by day and a fire by night. They had seen incredible miracles happen in the desert. Two generations. And then they finally come up on the doorstep of the promised land. And he died. And remember, God had revealed himself to Moses in amazing ways. He'd given him his law. He'd given him the Ten Commandments. He'd gone up on Mount Sinai. And now he dies, and God comes and speaks to Joshua, the next leader. And he doesn't say, hey, I got this pillar of fire. got this cloud. I have just, you'll hear my voice. He's going to be faithful in all those things. He's going to use Joshua in miraculous ways. But what's he telling? him? He says, hold closely my law. Hold closely my words. Grab it. Let it direct you. Let yourself enjoy it. Then you'll be prosperous. Then you'll lead well. Then you'll see my faithfulness. And that's encouraging to us. God has always elevated his word. His word means so much to him because it's so full of life and it should bless us this morning. The law of God reveals the will of God and ultimately the character of God. Listen to that again. The law of God reveals the will of God and ultimately the character of God. The instructions of God in the Pentateuch show his holiness, his love, his sovereignty, his care for his people, his wrath towards sin and his oath towards his promises. The author of Psalms in Psalm 1 would have known about Joshua 1. Would have known the command God gave to Joshua and I think it affects him here. If you know me, you know one of my favorite quotes is by A.W. Tozer at the beginning of Knowledge of the Holy. It says, What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you? For this reason, the gravest question before us, he says, is always God Himself. Well, God's Word most accurately reveals who He is. And it's important that we think accurately about God. So here's my question Do you love God's Word? Do you love God's Word? Do you want to read it? Do you want to study it? Do you believe God's Word to be the words of life? Or are you honestly struggling this morning that it is just a drudgery? Well, how we answer that question will largely determine what we can answer in the first question of if we're genuinely happy. Well, God's word is the words of life, and and we see that by the work of the Holy Spirit, and it can lead us to God himself, which, as we consider kind of verse 3, we talk about the blessed man as described by his fertilization. A.W. Pink says, He is like a tree. He is not a reed moved about by every wind which blows, nor a creeper trailing along the ground. A tree is upright and grows heavenward. This tree is planted. Many are not, but grow wild. A planted tree is under the care and cultivation of its owner. You know, it's funny. When I thought about the concept of the tree this week, I did not think about palm trees. I don't know if you do. When you close your eyes and think about Psalm 1, it probably says you grew up in Florida. I grew up in Indiana where there's creeks and rivers, and they wind around, and it's amazing when you see a tree planted by water. That tree is healthy, it's wide, it grows strong, and it's actually good for everything. It drops food down for the fish in the river. It actually is helpful to hold that river bank up. It grows big leaves, it grows shade, it has fruit, it has flowers. It's amazing to sit under. And if you're stuck in the river, it's the best place to get out of the river from because the steps are sure, right? It's awesome. I used to go canoeing with college guys with student leaders, and they'd jump from them. They'd hang and swing into the, the, the river or the uh, pond or whatever. Those trees are useful. They're beautiful. Well, that's, that's the description that we have here. We have the description that that the person who delights in God's word and seeks him with with all his commands and his promises, that person will be useful to everyone around them. Even though their focus is really to be a tree. My focus is to be a tree and to grow towards heaven and to bear fruit in season. But it's useful to everyone around them. That is the happy man. That's the blessed man. That's the man that loves God's word. Westminster Catechism says, what's the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's usefulness. The best thing that we can do, the most useful thing, the most fruitful thing we can do is to love God and enjoy him forever and start now by enjoying his word. And in that, we'll spill out love for others and usefulness for others and bearing fruit in season and patience that comes with that. Well, would your life be described by God himself as a tree planted by the water? Are you patiently yielding fruit? Well, we've talked about who. We've talked about the the what, the description of what characterizes this. Quickly, let's look at the when and the where this blessedness and righteousness will be realized. Well, sadly, again, this is a comparison. When we talk about the win and the where of this happiness, it's actually in description in comparison to the win and the where of the wicked man. If you look in verse 4 and 5, the wicked are not so, they're like chaff that the wind drives away, therefore the wicked will not stand in judgment. Notice two things. This whatever happiness the wicked man has is fleeting, and it's going to be blown away. And the number two. The happiness it has will end in judgment. It will not stand. Well, what does that teach us about the when and where of happiness? Only the happiness in God and his person will last. Happiness in sin will be judged and will be damned. Judgment is real and it's certain. And this is honestly, as we look at why this is in the beginning is that many, 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 many other psalms that come behind this are going to look towards this truth and say, this is what I need to cling to, but then be honest with their circumstances of, I'm struggling to see it. And it's good that this is here to remind ourselves of what true happiness is and when it will be secured. I like to think of this happiness that comes in loving God as actually being a progressive happiness. There's, a, there's a, a worldly study. There's a Stanford study in the 1970s called the Stanford Marshmallow Experiment. Anybody ever heard of this? This was this really mean study on kindergartners that basically uh, a scientist would come in and he would tell a young person that they could have a marshmallow and he would set it. And he said, now, if you don't eat it now, when I come back, you're going to have two. And so... Inevitably that person would leave, the scientists would leave, and you would see this kid just struggling to not eat the marshmallow. And more often than not, they ate the marshmallow. And then the scientists come back and say, Oh, I can't have another. But there were the few that didn't. They just sat there and stared at it or closed their eyes so they didn't have to. And when the scientists came back in, they got two. Well, the study wasn't on marshmallows. It was a long a longevity study that looked at the success of their life based on delayed gratification. And the people that waited for two marshmallows were inevitably more successful in the whole arc of their life When they studied them over 30 years Well that experiment is worldly wisdom That delayed gratification is a mark of maturity and brings uh, Some success and happiness, right? But psalm 1 kind of shows us there's progressive and lasting and continual happiness that's ultimately realized in judgment Because we're viewed as righteous and that's the hope of the happy man. That yes, I can enjoy some happiness. Yes, I get two marshmallows as I pursue God's law. But in that life, I know that my paths have been made straight by the one who loves me and draws me to himself. So here's my question How long will your happiness last? What will, give your, what will you give your time and your study to? Your meditation? Will it be here tomorrow for eternity? As a husband, as a parent, as a leader, are you pointing those who you love the most to the real, most lasting, most deep happiness that can be found in knowing the person of Jesus Christ? There is a continual happiness. There is an already and not yet of this happiness that's found in the eternity, that's found in judgment, that's found when we'll actually be with God. So we see who the happiness or who see the happy man is we see what characterizes him We see that there will be the when and the where of there's a happiness that comes now But there's a a direction that leads us to everlasting happiness in eternity So let's ask the why as we close and, and move into this our application this morning Why is this here? Why start a book of praise here? This seems strange Doesn't this belong in Proverbs? There's no words here that say, Bless the Lord, O my soul. There's no doxology that you get at the end of Psalms, which is amazing. This is just wisdom. What's the point? And and these two Psalms, Psalm 1, Psalm 1, are the only Psalms in all of the first book that aren't attributed to David. They just sit out here at the front And a lot of scholars, theologians Have called these the the preface psalms So a preface I don't know if you've ever read a preface I know if you're like me, you just dive into chapter 1 And then you go back and read the preface Like oh, I probably should have read that first Well, the preface tells you how to read the book The preface tells you how to prepare it It may tell you something about the author It may tell you something about This is where the author was When they approached this book And this is somewhat of what we have here. We do not have a lament. We do not have a praise. They do not reveal a struggle or a specific act of God in which they're thanking him for. They do not reveal change in their heart, as we'll find in a lot of other psalms. They do start with a blessing in chapter 1. And so let's consider it. If the book of Psalms is known as a book of praise and serves as a song book, why would you start with a simple problem? Well, here's what I think the answer is. This has been the biggest encouragement for me this week as I've studied. Kindling a delight in God's word prepares the heart to worship God and enjoy his presence. Kindling a delight in God's word prepares the heart to worship and to enjoy his presence. I believe that this psalm is laid out at this rich book of praise, as a means to prepare the reader to know with whom they are meeting and with whom they're communing with. You know, sometimes before we pray as a, uh, we thank God for our food as a family, I have a seven-year-old, a five-year-old and a two-year-old well, four-year-old, almost five. And we say, "Close your eyes, bow your heads, let's remember to whom we're speaking. And there's some level of that that is happening here. As we're about to go into this book of praise, this book of prayer. Close your eyes, bow your heads. Considering God's word to whom we're speaking. Consider Moses at the end of Deuteronomy 31 again. So right before Joshua. You have Moses and he writes the law at the very end. He writes out the first five books of the Bible, basically. He writes out the law of God. And he does it, and then he knows he's going to die. God literally tells him that's going to happen. And as soon as he gets done writing the law, what's he do? He wants to gather all the leaders of, of Israel together, all the tribe leaders, And he wants to tell them the following. He says, Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass, and like showers upon the herb. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. There is a natural progression from sitting in God's word to singing God's praise. There is a natural progression. From sitting in God's word to singing God's praise. God's word and his worship naturally accompany one another. Look at Psalm 119. I know we're doing a reading together. You have permission to not read three psalms. Today you read Psalm 119. It has 176 verses. Do you know what all 176 verses are about? God's word. God's law. Who God is and what he's revealed I, as I studied this week, I was taken back to George Mueller. He was a Prussian um, a follower of God that moved to England. He spent much of his life there. He preached up until, I think, 87. Uh, he served in churches, but what he was most known for was, was he, over 10,000 orphans were um, brought into healthy orphanages because of his leadership and his response to who God was. And honestly, he never, in his, from what I can read, he never asked a single person to give him money or to give the orphanages money. He prayed, trusted God, and they were always provided. Literally, there's stories of like rice showing up as he was praying. He had done amazing things for God. And near the end of his life, he sat down to write uh, a reflection, and he wrote this. He said, has recently pleased the Lord to teach me a truth, irrespective of human instrumentality, as far as I know the benefit of which I have not lost. The point is this. I saw more clearly than ever the first and great and primary business which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. And he goes on to say, it was really tempting for me to want to think about and to pray about. How can I be useful to God today? How can I glorify God today? How can I serve God today? And he goes on and he says in this last paragraph here, he says, now I saw that the most important thing I had to do was to give myself to the reading of the word of God and to the meditation on it that thus my heart might be comforted, encouraged, warned, reproved, instructed, And that thus by means of the word of God While meditating on it My heart might be brought into experiential communion With the Lord He's saying I needed to wake up every morning And spend time in God's word And as I did that and as I didn't just read it As I wanted to find God in it Do you know what happened? God was there And we had communion God's word naturally leads the praise of God. It naturally leads to speaking with God. Do you seek to make your heart happy in the word today? Do you spend time until you are comforted, encouraged, warned, reproved, instructed in having your heart brought into dialogue with God until you sit happy in his presence? Well, may that be so. Finally, we talked about the why of application. Let's just talk quickly about the how. How do we cultivate a soul happiness in God's word? Well, three quick things. Number one, as you study God's word, as you spend time in your word, as you, I hope that you find whatever time works for you and you say, I want to not just read this and know this and have this list of rules like the Pharisees did. I want to find God that in that, that as you open God's word that you would find Christ. Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin that in him he might become the righteousness of God meditate on God's word that you might see a holy God but in that you're going to find that you are unworthy to stand before a holy God and that your only means as you sit under the law of God is a savior and a perfect sacrifice as we just celebrated last weekend. And that's Jesus Christ. And that's what you need to find in the Old Testament, in the New Testament. Psalms is a book about Jesus and should lead us to Jesus. Find that. That is preaching the gospel to yourself every day and it starts in God's word. And if you're sitting here this morning and you say, Bob, I don't want to be in God's word. It's drudgery to me. I do not find happiness delighting in God's word. Find Christ. Number two, foster fellowship. There are wonderful things about being a part of a church. But maybe one of the most important is that we would foster a fellowship that delights in God's word. We do this by the reading of God's word. We do it right now as we're hopefully getting something out of the preaching of God's word. It should be our primary concern. When we get together on a Sunday, this is the most important thing we do. It leads us to what? We call this what? We call it worship. Number t- you know, in that too, we have these amazing studies. We have Bible studies. We have uh, Sunday school classes going on for all ages from kids. We have Wednesday night teaching. We have Awana. We have these opportunities that all do what? They center on God's word. Why? Because that's happiness. That's what's going to lead us to happiness. Number three, we have small groups. We have Bible studies. If you don't know how to come Saturday, if you're in the men's group, breakfast, we'll tell you how to get started. Women, we have lots of ways to get involved. Please consider that because God's word will lead to worship, will lead to happiness as we seek him. And finally, form disciplines. Read God's word daily as a means to foster your life, your prayer life, and a goal to stir your heart towards him. And teach your families to do the same. Are you happy this morning? As Martin Lloyd-Jones says, you can be. It's found here. It's found in God's word. It's found in the person of Jesus Christ. May we seek it this morning. Pray with me. Generally, Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your law. It reveals your holiness. It reveals our unworthiness. Therefore, God, we thank you for Jesus Christ, who's the fulfillment of the law, who's our righteousness. Oh, God, may we know that fully this morning. Please, God, use your word to stir us to a place of happiness in you and a desire to worship you and enjoy you. God, do this for your glory. Amen.